Welcome, Rochester, to our eighth edition of Let's Get Lit. We are so excited today. We have someone in the studio with us that is just doing phenomenal things out here in these streets to help our community be better from a mental health, um, not only mental health, but also to help those who are coming out of predicaments from uh, prison. Also, um, he could tell y'all so much more because he's like, out here doing amazing things. So we have Mr. Mike Quell Powell in the building. <laughs> Thanks for having me. So we're going to let you introduce yourself. We got Naeem in the building with us too. Peace and love world. How y'all doing today? So Mr. Powell, could you give us something, background information about yourself, please? Um, Yeah, I'm Mike Quell Powell. I'm the founder of the Reentry and Community Development Center on North Street. Um, we work with people that's recently released from jail or prison or struggling with chemical dependency. Um, we have support groups there. Um, we do a lot on case management. Um, but I'm also the author of two self-published books, too. All right, hit us off with the titles. Um, one of my first book that I published is a um, poem compilation. It's called Love and Pain, Feelings of a Man. And I have a novel, too, that's called Rock Hard, The Life of a True Hustler. Okay. <laughs> we out here. So... Those titles are dope, and I, I'm really glad that you uh, wrote poetry from the perspective of a male because I think that's something that is missing um, in our society today. So we're going to go into the title for this week, and this week's title is Let's Get Lit, The Power of Changed Mindset. So each time we meet, we ask everybody the same question, and we're going to ask you, Mr. Powell, when did you fall in love with literacy? Um, the first, first time, my mother, she used to write poems, and I remember reading a couple of her poems, so, and then when I got incarcerated, um, I dropped out in the ninth grade. Uh, mm -hmm. So uh, I was in a space to where I was trying to find myself. Uh, so while I was incarcerated, one of the things that I did a lot was read. Uh, so that's when I really fell in love with literacy while I was incarcerated. That's what's up. Naima, when, when did you fall in love? Hit us up. I'm actually still falling in love with literacy, but my first, I guess, like, it was, it's through music. I say this all the time that we meet. It's in, through music, through hip-hop culture and hip-hop lyricism. And that happened at the tender age of five years old. And for me, it, it was more of a social justice um, as well as I've always been an avid writer. Um, so literacy is so much more than just book and bind is what I call it. But it's out when we're advocating. It's out in the signs you see. It's out when you're at a rally. And that's what I was immersed in growing up is seeing literacy in action is what I call it. So I want to hit us off since we're celebrating the 50 years of hip hop. I have this beautiful hip-hop journal, and it's a daily planner. So I want to just hit us off with a couple of uh, things that happened on July the 25th. In 1971, um, New York Times article refers to Philadelphia as the graffiti capital of the country. In 1986, two live crews um, debut album... The two live crew is what we are in Steady Bees. It, de it debuted on this day. On, in 1989, the Beastie Boys' album Paul's Boutique is released. And the 1995 Bone Thugs and Harmony releases their second album, um, Eternal. So, 1999, Eternal. 1999. So... 
Michael, could you share with us um, your experience and why you think it's so important when it comes to literacy? Because you said that you dropped out in ninth grade. And one of the things that Naeem and I talk about all the time is about the school setting and how that can make or break a lot of our black males. Uh, what was your experience like that pushed you out the door in ninth grade? Um, that's, a, that's a good question. Or did it happen before ninth grade, the pushing you out? Mm-hmm. To be honest, I did fairly well in school until probably like I graduated middle school. I graduated eighth grade, um, was a juvenile delinquent, uh, so I wind up going DFY, Division for Youth. Um, so that's where I always say that's where I got really smart at um, because the classes were small, so it was probably like eight kids to one teacher, and I was really able to get like one-on-one learning. Um, but once I um, came back home out of Division for Youth, I really ain't have nothing else. It was like no aftercare services. Um, so it was more like the streets. I went to East High School for probably, no, first I went to Edison, then I went to East High School for probably like two months, and it just wasn't working no more. So I was playing football, too, at the time. Uh, so I was, I was going to practice, and I remember the coach coming to the classroom because I had started missing practices, and it just, it just wasn't, I didn't, I didn't have like no role models, nobody telling me stay in school. It was more of the streets was, was more influential than anything. So I always say when I did uh, finally drop out, I always say nobody came looking for me. And I think that's like that right there is when you think about what it stands for liberating individuals through literary text. And we talk about the halls of a school is supposed to be one of the most influential liberating places. But when it comes to our African-American young men and men, that has become a nightmare. And hearing you say that no one came looking for me um, is, it just made my stomach like drop when I think about me as an educator, Naima as an educator. And I know when I teach, and I've been teaching since 2004, and I had some students who were in gangs, mm. and they knew I would roll up on whatever block they were at, <laughs> let them miss my class. And they know, oh, Miss Flo don't play. She'll roll up on the block. And it, it, it just really bothers me that teachers can spend more time with children than their parents, and nobody came to look for you. Nobody. So did you ever have, like, a teacher you connected with while you were in school? And that's what I was going to say, too. No. Since I, was, since I was going to school in Rochester City School District, I have never had the luxury of having a black male school teacher. The only closest thing to it, it was a, um, it was a teacher named Mr. Green at Monroe Middle School. But um, I just never landed in his class. I know of him. I've seen him. Um, but I have never, and um, I went to 14, so from preschool to fifth grade, there was no black male teachers. There was one black teacher. Her name was Miss Weston. Um, but in Monroe Middle School, I never landed with a black male. Uh, so now nah, I didn't have nobody that I could make that connection with. It was only the people from my neighborhood and whatever they was into, that's what I was into. I was just reading somewhere that black male teachers make up 1%, mm-hmm. maybe less than 1% less than, than. of the total teaching population in the nation. Wow. So there's a, there's a great need for black male educators. So if you're out there listening, brothers, young people who are thinking about going into higher education, consider education as a field because black, young black boys need you. All people need black men in classrooms. Right. It benefits everybody of all culture and races when they see a black male in a leadership position. 
Well, and not only that, well, it goes even deeper. Don't just go into it. We got to have people in leadership that are going to put you in it. Because so many of black men that I know that are certified, that are qualified, but yet they're getting the runaround from the district, from other places that are doing things that pushes them away from education. And then the pay. If you are a man and you're heading a household and you're supposed to provide and protect you can't provide and protect making pennies and cents, and even with social workers, because you are bing, 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 just got your MSW <laughs> right, out here right, in these streets. Right. Congratulations. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> So that in itself, you know how many black male social workers? I've been in education since 2004. I've been in school since 1985, mm-hmm. and I've never seen a black male social worker in the schools. Wow. So... Again, not just in education do we need to see black men, but we also need to see black men in social work because so many of our black boys are struggling. And what are your what words do you have to the culture right now? Because one of the things you always talk about is what culture our young men are being swayed to. And the notch right now is go to jail. You get the big party when you come home. You get celebrated for that. Right. How do you look to shift that with your experience? Um, one of the things that I, that I do is I just try to lead by example. Um, so I'm always present in my community. I come from Sayo Street. Uh, so I'm always making my, letting my face be seen over there. Um, I don't try to um, play both sides. Everybody know uh, what side I'm on, and it's not the streets no more. Uh, so that's, that's what I do. Even when I'm working and I'm working with the vulnerable populations that I do work with, um, I try to lead by example, um, and, and that's even by the way I dress, the way I carry myself, the way I talk, um, and, and also create other opportunities to hire a lot of people that was formerly incarcerated. I try to hire people that was formerly incarcerated and come from Sayo Street, too, um, so I'm working on doing more of that. Um, but I think it's important to, to – you have credible messengers, right? Mm-hmm. But credible messengers that mimic the street life. I just don't know how effective that is. Like if you're constantly telling your story, oh, I've been in jail before, I used to be a shooter, I used to do this. No, I, I really try not to tell that much of the side of me and just let them see what I'm doing today and try to um, exalt that more than anything. You bring up a good point because going back to hip hop, most of the messages in the music is glamorizing and celebrating and sensationalizing the street culture. Even when they're trying to tell Even kids. Even when they're trying to, yes. Like I did this so you don't have to do it. Jay did that, so you ain't got to do it. You know what right. I'm saying? I think, well, how much of that is still perpetuating the same old, like, well, let's try it, you know, or seductive even. Right. And know? even though you're saying, I, I did that, so you don't got to do it, but. You're a billionaire now, so I kind of want to do what you did <laughs> right, to get there, even though you're saying, you right. So it's kind of like telling a child, don't smoke a cigarette while you got a cigarette in your mouth. And I think one of the pieces to this puzzle that you hit on um, that is very hard for us is our story, right? Our story is a part of what brings liberation, because if you cannot be honest about where you've come from, how will you be able to know where you're going? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, when we were, I was just at a conference in Buffalo, um, and they were talking about the changes in hip hop mm-hmm. and how you had people in hip hop who first came out 50 years ago and you didn't hear, you heard it, but it wasn't to the extent that it is like right now to right. the point where they were talking about, I believe Busta Rhymes was on receiving an award and he talked about how the older men in hip-hop owe it to the younger ones to pull them to the side and 
Like, listen, y'all out here killing each other off of falsified beef. And right. this is the same thing that you saw growing up in the streets. And a lot of things we see in the classrooms today. How would you begin to see the importance of writing and telling your story, but also changing your mindset? Right. So that's one of the things that I did um, with my poetry book. All, all the poems that I got in my poetry compilation, I wrote them while I was incarcerated. I never like wrote no poems and published them when I was home. So it was kind of like me trying to find myself as a black man through poetry. Uh, so feelings of a man, I talk a lot about um, family. I talk about a lot about relationships. And I talk a lot about community, too. Um, all of those things I was wrestling with was how do I go from my point of departure was the streets, but I knew that I didn't want to return to that. So who am I afterwards? Mm -hmm. So that's what my um, my poetry, and that's the only way I really could, could express myself. Like when I was incarcerated, there's so many things that you had to be mindful of while you're in that space. But when I was able to write, I can free myself. I can think how I want to think. And and I was really trying to work to find to find who I'm going to be once I in incarceration, once I get out of um, prison. And writing, it helped me a lot. It helped me a lot, especially um, trying, to, trying to narrow down what type of man that I wanted to be. Um, so I put it in perspective through poems and poetry. How important do you think um, being vulnerable is to black men and like expressing their vulnerability and black boys being in touch with their emotions even? Right. So that kind of inspired me to write poetry, too, is because I know that as a black man, it's difficult to express your emotion. We express our emotions in anger, being tough. Um, having a certain demeanor about ourselves at all times, especially if you came from the streets. Um, because vulnerability in the streets, it don't go hand in hand, right? It's like oil and water. You can't be on nobody's corner being vulnerable, right? right? So um, I kind of was like forced to tap into that side of me. Um, and, and now today, I, I share my personal story a lot uh, when I'm working with these vulnerable populations, but not in a way to where I'm telling specifics, but just communicating you in, in a manner to where you know I know what's going on. You know I've been somewhere. I might not be telling you uh, I've been to prison before because you know it's ethical boundaries to where you don't share your story like that. I might not say I've been to prison before, but you know I know what's going on just by how I'm interacting with you. Um, so yeah, and I'm, sometimes I might be vulnerable and sometimes I might share um, something that's personal, um, but I just pick and choose it for sure. And I think that's one of the liberating pieces that is a blockage for a lot of our, our men and young men is weakness, right? Mm -hmm. if, I, if I show myself, therefore I will be weak. If I say that this hurts me, therefore I shall be weak. Mm -hmm. And then you have older guys that will come alongside and be like, you, you, don't, you don't do that. Right. And when we think about liberation, when we think about mindset, when we think about shifts, when we think about how many young men are pushed out mentally based on research dropout begins in fourth grade mm -hmm. and I thought that was very powerful when I was doing some research myself about black males and when they begin to drop out and I thought it was just very pivotal that you can either turn on or turn off someone mentally as early as fourth grade and it starts to become a reality when they hit middle school where you're starting to see their attendance drop and then high school, when the credits hit, that's when you see them disappear for real because now I'm not about to be 17, 18 in the ninth grade class. Right. So when you talked about the mindset that you had to have, but it, it bothers me that many of our educators don't understand 
urban education. And when mm. I say urban education, I mean it as understanding the life around the schools. Right. And I want to ask you a question. Everybody's been talking about this like this is something new. Community schools is now this big buzz again. Again? Again, like it's... For real? For real. <laughs> and you talked about going to 14 school at the time, which right. was connected to uh, what is now the world of inquiry. Mm-hmm. And it was taken out and you said you would walk across that bridge and you would go to school and you right. would know and people would know your mom and they would tell your mom, da, 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 da. What do you think community schools, how does that play in liberation with our community? Um, first, I have a, I have trouble um, even finding a rationale to why you even take community schools out of a community. Um, I just don't know the philosophy, um, but it happened. We had Chester Dewey School, number 14 on Sayo Street. Um, all of the neighborhood kids, we will walk over the bridge and go to school and come back. And um, a lot of the parents worked in the school in some capacity, and we knew them. Um, one of them is Giles, Miss Jones. We know, and when we see them right now, we still have that same level of respect. We call them Miss before their name because that's how we was growing up. And I think that that was so important. Like It was really a community school. Um, and I think they should just add more to it, like GED for parents, financial literacy after school. It should have just been added more instead of taking it away. And what happened was, I don't know when they did it, but um, when we was going to 14, it was the dominant school there. The community school was dominant in 58. Um, they was around the corner. They just had like a couple floors. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was our school. And now they got the whole school. And all of the kids that went to 58 back when I was going there, they was bussed in. Right. So they wasn't even from the community. We, we'd see them um, lunchtime. We'd see them out the window playing. Then they'd go in. Then we'd go outside and play. So we didn't even interact with them. Uh, so now they took the whole school. And now 14 was moved somewhere else for like two years. And now it's just gone completely. So there's no even no 14, no 14 school in uh, city school district. I feel like those plans are done just to dismantle certain progress, you mm-hmm. know, like, oh, this is working. Because, again, with community, you build power, this familiarity. You know, you begin to talk about things and share ideas. But when you have kids from the east side coming over to the 19th Ward and kids who live in the 19th Ward going over to the east side, right. you, there is no community. Right. It becomes the hood. You don't even know who your neighbor is, right. you know, and that becomes, like, where you see the degradation of the community and the destruction of a culture. Mm-hmm. But that's all, I think, very deliberate. Yes. You're talking about capitalism and keeping people as a permanent underclass in this nation because you have to have an underclass in order for capitalism and the, the pyramid to persist. You know, and, and one of those things they do that in certain communities. Mm-hmm. They don't do that in you other communities because they they protest, they 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 make noise about you taking a community school out of certain communities, but um, they do it where they feel like they could. You know, as a part of oppression for sure. Well, it's not even just that. It was deliberate for the people to make noise, but for the wrong things. And when you talked about that, when I did research about what was the breakdown across the nation for community schools, Mm -hmm. the research showed that resources not being allocated equitably Mm -hmm. was the reason that parents went to boards of education and demanded that they have school choice choice because Mm -hmm. what happened was, for an example, you got two school, four school three school, right? They're Mm -hmm. all in the same quad, if you would look at it on the west side. You could live and be at two school and have a whole different experience at three school and have a whole different experience at four school Uh when it came to resources. Mm -hmm. So add to that rent. So they knew that the rent and people in a lot of urban settings are nomadic. Mm -hmm. So when you know that people are nomadic and they move around a lot, 
then there's no consistency when it comes to those resources. So parents were like, okay, then we need to have a choice of where my child is going to go. So when you think about resources, because you talk about that all the time with your center and why it's important for resources to be allocated equitably Mm -hmm. and why is it that we purposely drive resources and corral them to get people ignited over the wrong thing. Mm. If you had more resources with your um, company right now, what could you do in the community? I can do a lot, but but first, so you so you saying um, that people advocating for choice in school, the unintended consequences was we lost community. School. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, for for sure, resources um, could be better distributed if we was able to get. We have never received like any major funding. Um, right now, we do get funding from community organizations, but in terms of like local government, never, not once. Um, so if we have more resources, we can hire more people. Um, program development, we can we can have programs that that work. Um, we can do more collaboration. We can open full time. Right now, we can't even really afford to open full time. Um, we can serve more people. Um, so that's one of my things. I'm always trying to figure out how can we serve more people. Um, and, and that all boils down to resources. Do you even have the capacity to serve more people? So, mm-hmm. yeah, resources. Could you, could you tell us what you do on the weekends? What you mean? In terms on of Saturdays? At, at the agency? Yep. Professionally. Yep. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> on Saturdays. <laughs> oh, Saturdays at the spot. Working, working yeah, so, nine to five, right? yeah, so on Saturday, that's when we have our support groups for people that's coming home from jail or prison or struggling with chemical dependency. Um, but prior to that, we just added um, what we call a fitness hour um, to where we allow the men and women that participate in our program to come in into the agency and work out. Um, this weekend, we tried something new, and we had a yoga instructor. And uh, this was my first time doing yoga, um, and I think that it was it was amazing. So when we talk about resources, those are things that we can implement in this, in this community. Everything that we do, and we do it for our participants, but we also try to make it free to the community too. So for example, our fitness hour, even you don't have to participate in our reentry program, but you can still come and work out at our at our location uh, for free. And could you just also, before Naima jumps in, um, you give out free hygiene products. Could you please tell people the days you do that and how people can help with that that you give out to people? Yeah, so one of the things that we do, we know um, if, if people is, is receiving um, DHS, right, um, they don't really have cash to spend on hygiene products. So our philosophy was we can get that out to the community for free. Um, so on Tuesdays, we do that from... Um, 11 to 1 on Tuesdays, and then our participants that come and they utilize our services, they can always get free hygiene products as well. And for our listening audience, can, can you give us the location? Um, we have 437 North Street. Say it again. 437 North Street, and our number is 585-445-8380. It's amazing. Can we, go, can we go to the book real quick? Yeah, for Just sure. Real quick. Um, so your favorite poem, do you have one in the book? I got a couple favorite poems, but... <laughs> Um, hold on, hold on, hold on, if I can find it real fast. I got a, a poem that's called In Deep Thought. You care to share it with our listening go. audience? Let's, <laughs> let's get lit real quick. If we got time, we, we can get time. lit. We got time, we got plenty of time. All right, we can get lit then, hold yeah, on. Yeah, we get lit. All right, so um, this poem is one of the poems that's in my poetry compilation, Love and Pain, Feelings of a Man. It's called Deep Thought. In moments of deep thought, I think of life, love, and pain. Understanding the success I've sought and rationalizing my failures and gains. 
Have I done all that I was called? Carnal ways of living in a secular world. Was the devil present when I stalled? Was all good done from God's referral? Honestly, I can't answer my own questions, but I strive to do so much better. Holding myself responsible for lusting, protect me, Father, from the stormy weather. In the moments of deep thought, I see the greed in the hearts of men, realizing the hurt their deeds brought, killing themselves and others with sin. Will evil men experience similar deaths? Can those who change have another chance? Practicing evil right down to their last breaths, while on their hearts the demons of Satan dance. I search within myself to find solutions whenever I'm feeling distraught. I think of life and all its pollutions in moments of deep thought. Mm, you better yes. 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 Out here. We get Out lit. Here so. we get lit. And I was 21 years old in prison writing poems like that. Wow. And that's like, that's amazing to me because when you think about expression and how hard it is to not only just collect your thoughts, but to be vulnerable enough to let someone to see you like you're undressing yourself. And that's what liberation is. Mm -hmm. When you're truly liberated, no one can take that away from you. Mm -hmm. No one can dim your shine because you get to control your shine. Mm -hmm. But the question is, why aren't we lit? Right. And I think Wait, that's about the irony of getting that free, but yet being incarcerated. Right. Right. Like that's mm -hmm. the irony. Because mm -hmm. you have tapped into that deeper part of yourself out, you know, in the streets. You know, you know what's crazy is right before I got incarcerated, I was in that process. Um, my, my oldest kid's mother, she was pregnant, so I was expecting it, my first child. And I remember I used to always be walking through my neighborhood thinking in my head, Lord, just please let me live until my son is born. That's all I really wanted to see. I wanted to be able to see my son. I had like an eerie feeling. Um, so I knew that I was about to be a father, so I started trying to do things different. Um, I started going to get my GED. I was trying that. Um, I, had, I never had a license. I was trying to pay all tickets to get a license, open up a bank account. So I was already in that process of doing things different, but yet I was still connected um, to the streets at the same time. So, yeah, I think I probably could have, mm -hmm. but I just didn't have no support. I didn't have an equal balance of the street and also have somebody telling me that that ain't the way to live or you can do something different. So I was always lacking that part, but I always had it in me, I think. Does it matter the look of a person telling you to do what's right, or did you need a, a specific type of person? I couldn't have nobody that was that was um, into what they was telling me not to be into. That never was effective for me. Mm -hmm. So I couldn't have had a big-time drug dealer that I looked up to that I perceived was doing good telling me, you stay in school. Right. I just couldn't have it like that. But if I would have had somebody that was working... And, and really had the nine to five life taking care of their family. If I had them showing me the example, like if you do what I'm doing, if you go get a job, you can still have a car like this. You can still own your own home, stuff like that. I think that would have been a little more effective. Right. Wow. I'm just sitting here thinking about the songs that play on the radio, right? <laughs> All of them. And looking at how you can have a stable household, two-parent household, you know, parents working really, really hard. But yet those messages in the music... You know, it does kind of like lead vulnerable minds astray to even think about what's that about, you know? And I think about my own children when you're speaking, like, damn, like what messages are they hearing? Because one voice is not enough to tell you to stay on the right path. You need like several voices in your community to help you stay guided and to check in on you, mm -hmm. you know, and, and to keep you accountable. But we have a lot of work to do in this community with our youth. 
I'm up for the challenge, though. Every year is a new challenge. It brings a new challenge. And, you know, we sharpen our swords here on Lit, Get Lit podcast and um, in the community with each other, having these conversations. Mm-hmm. Kiana, what you're about to read for the people? She's looking for something. I know. <laughs> yes, so, um, you know, I always close with a poem, and you I was going to... Yeah, we got like five minutes left, and time went by so quickly, but I wanted to, um, instead of, you know, I love Tupac, but I wanted to um, give honor to our brother that's in the, the studio who has his own compilation of poems, and I wanted to close with one of your poems. But before we close, I want to give you some time to um, speak to our black brothers and let them know um, what's on your mind and mindset shift and why it's time. Because we had, I think, so many shootings over the last weekend, and I it pains me to my stomach as a mother that has two black sons yeah. Um, life being cut short and wondering who they could have become and you're 14 years old behind a, a gun and you're taking life and then you want to be liberated by pouring out Hennessy. libation of Hennessy mm-hmm. and it, it just it pains me that liberation is being seen by a very cataract lens from our young black men and our older ones as well. So if you had an opportunity to speak to our black boys right now and men, what would you say? Um, I think I think it might sound a little cliche, um, but what I would say is um, by all means stay in school. If I was to look back on my life and if I had to put my finger on what I think is one of my biggest mistakes, even though I live in a moment and I'm here for a reason right now, um, but if it would have been a little less harder for me in life if I would have stayed in school. Um, I think education is still the key to success. Um, We don't share that message to our um, black children um, anymore. Um, I have a summer camp starting this Saturday. um, And that's one of the, that's one of the themes that I, that I want to get across is that education is still the key to success. And when I say I lead by example, I want to always be able to tell a young black child that I encounter is that I dropped out in the ninth grade, but today I have a master's degree. Um, so we have a lot of people wanting to be um, influencers, wanting to rap, wanting to play ball. Those things are good, but I think that your backup plan should always be education. The very least that um, advice that I can give a black child, a boy or a girl, is to at least graduate high school. And then you make the decision whether or not you want to pursue college or you want to start your own business or you want to get a skilled trade. But the very least is finish your basic education, K through 12. And if you, before you drop out, um, reach out for support. Uh, that would be my advice. Sound advice. Wow, powerful. Anything you want to say real quick, Naima, before we close out? So it's a Leo stand-up. It's Leo season. Gemini. <laughs> I'm a cancer. Virgos. <laughs> All right, so we're going to end this way, and this is a poem by none other than Michael Powell, and it's called A Place Within Yourself. I dare you to expose your heart to me. Let me search for and solve each mystery. Show me the passage to your secrets. I'll be the perfect man for you to fall in love with. Let's get lit.